When I was in high school, there used to be a, a gym in the basement of the Nazarene Church uh, gym. And when I say there was a gym in the bottom, I meant like a weightlifting gym. So I would go there every once in a while to work out. I know I, you can tell I still don't work out. But uh, uh, one time I was there, I was really, you know, 16, 17 years old. And I was there one time with another gentleman who was uh, lifting weights and he was a believer, and he, I remember him looking at me and saying, hey, what car do you drive? And I told him what car I drove. He said, yeah, I think I've seen your car around. Uh, how come you don't have any Christian bumper stickers on your car? And I said, well, I don't really like bumper stickers <laughs> of any sort on my car. And he began to, and he was about probably 10, 15 years older than me, so you know, looked up to him as a, as a brother in Christ, as a fellow believer, more mature in the faith than I was. And he began to tell me that as a Christian, I had to have Christian bumper stickers on my car. Because this is how you tell people where you stand. This is how you tell people what you believe. This is how you get the message of Jesus out to the world. You gotta paste it everywhere. And so, you know, as a 16, 17 year old, I'm really grinding on this. Like, man, is it my moral responsibility to have Christian bumper stickers on my car? Or, you know, am I disobeying God if I don't? And then I also remember uh, Dr. Herb Anderson was the pastor here for a couple of years when I was in high school. And I remember him preaching a sermon one time on not taking the Lord's name in vain. And one of the illustrations that he used was if you have a Christian fish on the back of your car, you better drive like a Christian. Because you have taken up God's name and you better act like you've taken up God's name. And if you don't, you, you know you could be at risk of taking the Lord's name in vain. So here I am kind of weighing these two things, like, man, I could drive however I want without any bumper stickers, <laughs> or put a Christian bumper sticker, and all of a sudden I gotta obey the speed laws, you know? So it was like this really moral conundrum. Now, I'm not trying to argue for or against Christian bumper stickers this morning. That's not my point. What was the point of what Dr. Anderson had to say that was when you publicly identify yourself with Jesus, the way you live in the world, the way you act actually matters. It actually matters because people are watching us and, and what you do reflects on his name. And as Christians, bumper stickers or no, if we've identified ourselves with, with Jesus, we've taken his name on. We call ourselves Christians. Christ ones. And in one sense, it's, it's, a, it's helpful for us to remember that every action we, we do as ones who carry his name can either speak well of him or they can speak poorly of him. You've probably heard the famous quote, preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words. Have you heard that before? It's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi who did not ever say that. So he never said it. It wasn't from him. Somebody else said it. Or, you know, we're quick to nod our heads and, oh, that sounds so wise. That sounds really profound. I really, I really like that. And in one sense, it is a helpful corrective to people who kind of talk the talk but don't really walk the walk. To go like, hey, if you're, if, you're gonna, if you're gonna profess Christ, if you're gonna speak the language, if you're gonna say you're his, your life better line up with it. Your life itself better preach the gospel. But I think it's also easy for us to, to grab onto those words. And if you're like me, evangelism scares you to death, right? Sharing your faith with a, with a stranger or even a family member 
frightens you. It, it takes courage. It takes, uh, it takes guts to be able to do that. It's intimidating. So when I hear a verse, when I hear a, a, a quote like that, I think, oh, great. I don't ever have to talk about it. I can just live it. And then they'll see, you know, or maybe they'll ask me and a door will get open and we'll have a great conversation. But sometimes I forget to pray in the morning that God would open up those doors for me to talk because, man, then that would be kind of scary. It's much easier to avoid evangelism. It's much easier to, to not speak the gospel. It's much easier to, to just walk the walk and not talk the talk. Now, the mission statement of First Baptist Church Prineville is to be a people who embody and proclaim the life-giving fullness of the gospel. So it's not like we can either choose to walk the walk or choose to talk the talk. We can't have the walk without the talk and vice versa. So what does it look like then to embody, both embody and to proclaim, to speak the gospel in our lives? And these few short verses we're gonna look at today I think will help us in that. So I'm gonna read from 1 Thessalonians chapter four, starting at the end of verse 10, there's a sentence there that kind of hangs into verse 10 and goes to 11 and then all the way through 12. It says, but we urge you, brothers, we urge you, not, not, we're not commanding you, we're not forcing you, we're urging you, we're, we're exhorting you, we're encouraging you to do this. Well, to do what? In the, in the first two verses of 9 and 10, they had talked about loving each other, living lives of, of neighbor love with one, one another, brotherly love. So do this, love one another more and more and to aspire to live quietly. So we're urging you brothers to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So here's this kind of gentle encouragement, this, this passionate encouragement though, we urge you brothers to what? To aspire, to want to, to, to try to, to attempt in your lives to want to honor God and love others. But realizing that, that we're aspiring, we're, we're never gonna perfect it, we're all in process, we're, we're all growing, the Holy Spirit is working on us to help us to engage and, and walk in this way. So what the apostles do here is they commend three things, which I'm gonna walk through over the next few minutes. They commend quiet lives, industrious lives, and witnessing lives. We'll go through those one by one. So the first thing that they commend in this passage in verse 11 are quiet lives. Aspire to live quietly. Now, if you remember back in Acts chapter 17, when Paul and his buddies came to Thessalonica and began to share the gospel in the synagogue and then with the Gentiles, they unintentionally stirred up basically a hornet's nest of persecution of people coming after this, these believers and especially these apostles and this fledgling church. So, so this church knew persecution. They knew what it was like to be violently opposed by those who hated the gospel and who hated Jesus and his message. And they continued to live with friends and neighbors, maybe even family members who were opposed to the gospel and at the drop of a hat would violently oppose or persecute them. So here they are living in the midst of persecution. And in the midst of that, Paul's recommendation for them is to live 
quietly amongst their neighbors. He's not saying, hey, stand up for yourself if people persecute you. Fight back. He's saying live quietly. Now, now it would be easy to misunderstand Paul's appeal here as, as being sourced out of fear. Like Paul's afraid and, and he knows that they're afraid. So just live quietly. Try to, try to go under the radar. Try not to, not to say anything and just kind of hovel up and hide in your, your Christian hole. But if I were to think about the Apostle Paul and my top 10 list of least fearful people in the history of the world, Paul would make that list. He wasn't a fearful man. He was no stranger to persecution. But he also never sought out persecution. It wasn't like he went to each city saying, how many people can I get to kill me today? He never actively sought it out. He expected it. He knew it would inevitably come as, as fallen human beings Act, or as fallen human beings responded to the gospel message, but he never ever sought it out. He wasn't a glutton for punishment. Persecution came to Paul, he endured it graciously. He never sought it out, but he did shy away, he did, but he didn't shy away from speaking the truth of the gospel. He never shied away from talking to anyone who would listen to him about his Messiah. Jesus, and he would always even respond to those who attack the message. So, so I don't think he's commanding believers. I can't even imagine that he would command believers to shy away from speaking the truth of the gospel. I don't think that's what he's saying when he urges them to quiet lives. He's not commanding them to just be silent people. So quietness cannot refer to their manner of speech. When he says live a quiet life, it doesn't refer to what comes out of their mouth. Well, some of what comes out of their mouth, but it doesn't refer to their manner of speech as much as it does their manner of life, the way that they live. So it's, it's not a prohibition then against proclaiming the gospel. It's an appeal to embody the gospel. It's an appeal to embody the gospel. So it's that two-sided coin that our mission statement is built on, that we would be people who both proclaim, that is, speak the gospel, and then on the other side of the coin, we would be people who embody or live out the gospel. So if I were to put this verse or this phrase in my own words, it would be something like this. Be good citizens. Be good neighbors. Be humble people, be whole people, be honorable people who worship God, serve your neighbors, and love each other. And as you live gentle and quiet and humble lives, you will not only preach the gospel, which is naturally offensive, it's offensive to people to hear that they are sinners and that a holy God demands righteousness of them and that another person who is God himself died for them. That's offensive. The gospel will be naturally offensive, but preach it anyway. But you will also, you must also embody the gospel. And embodying the gospel is naturally attractive. So to proclaim the gospel, naturally offensive. To embody the gospel, naturally attractive. Another way to put what it looks like to live quiet lives would be nine words. Love, joy, peace, 
patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those are the fruit of the Spirit that Paul lays out in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Those are a quiet life, looks like the fruit of the Spirit. What does a loud life look like? Well, if you look back in Galatians 5, the two verses that come before that, Paul lines this out. Loud lives look like enmity, strife, jealousy, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Okay, that's the life that, that Paul doesn't want them to live. Instead, live a, live, a, live a Christ-like, quiet life that bears the fruit of the Spirit wherever you are. Secondly, Paul urges us to industrious lives. So again, verse 11, it says, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands, and be dependent, in verse 12, be dependent on no one. So now he's specifically lining out, here's what a quiet life should look like for you Thessalonians, for you believers. It should look like a life of industrious responsibility. And to mind your own affairs simply means being responsible for your own life, to take care of the things that you're responsible to take care of. Don't be nosy. Be busy, but don't be a busybody or a gossip. Refrain from, from putting your nose in other people's business where it shouldn't be. But on the other hand, be responsible, which looks like working to take care of your own business. Working to take care of your own life. Be busy about your own business, not the business of others at the neglect of your own. Now, throughout history, many people have um, derided manual labor or working with your hands as lowly and dishonorable. And I grew up in a home that highly valued education. So from the time I was young, I could never think of a time that I didn't think I was going to college because that was just a high value in my house. Get good grades so that you can go to college and go to college so you can get a good job so that it wasn't to make money necessarily as much as it was so that you don't have to work with your hands so that you don't have to do manual labor. And that was kind of the message that I was taught. And I still highly value education, but the more I think about it and the more I study the scriptures, the more I see that God values working with one's hands. Now, if we think about the context of ancient Thessalonica, Many people there were rich or they lived entitled lives where others took care of them. Maybe they had servants. Maybe they had lots of money. Others were just plain lazy. Okay, so working with your hands was an unthinkable form of survival. It was beneath them. Some of them probably would have rather starved than actually had to ruin their manicures to do anything. Okay, so an injunction from, from Paul and these guys here to work with your own hands would even be shameful to some of them. How could I stoop so low as to work with my own hands? But like I just said, a biblical worldview sees working with your own hands, whether it be manual labor or, or craftsmanship or some other kind of trade, this is a God-created honor. God has given you your hands, use them. Use them to produce. Use them to feed yourself. Use them to take care of yourself. It's a gift of God. And we know that work is difficult. That started back in Genesis 3 
With the fall and the curse, work became difficult. It became difficult to work with our hands and produce from the ground what we need to take care of us. But the creation reality is that God created work before the fall. He created labor before the fall. He created us to create and produce. He didn't make Adam and Eve to sit back and relax in the garden and just not do any work. He told them, work the garden and keep it. So working with your hands is an honorable thing in the sight of God. To see your God-given abilities to take care of your own needs and use them rather than being dependent on the work of others is much more honorable than being an able-bodied individual who, who unduly lives off the generosity of others. Now, in this church, there were also likely individuals who lived in poverty. They were just poor people. They had nothing. They didn't have jobs. Perhaps they couldn't work for some reason. Perhaps some of them were widows who, who had lost uh, husbands and sons and didn't have anyone to take care of them and they needed the generosity of others to support support them and in the church there there were probably poor people who had come to this come to the church or or, or been attracted to the church because of the ethic of neighbor love that Christ has taught us to love your neighbor as yourself and so the church was the most generous community in the in this community in this city and in the, in the church, they'd found not only Jesus himself, but they'd also discovered this new family of brothers and sisters who were living out this creed of loving each other, and, and who wouldn't be attracted by that? I'm needy, I'm coming in, and man, these people are sharing their stuff with me. Like I'm their brother, like I'm their sister, like I'm their family. And that's a beautiful picture of community, but we know that even with the best of intentions, benevolence generosity, handouts can easily be twisted by our fallen hearts to turn into entitlement really quickly. And so radical generosity in the church had possibly in this context turned into like a spigot of free stuff. Wow, this, this community is really generous. If I just turn the spigot, I can get whatever I want, fill up my cup and have what I need. And so they, they, they had this abundance of people who were just idle, who weren't working, who were just kind of depending on the generosity of others. And they had this environment, which I think we find in every human being, we're either a giver or we're a taker. And you can come into the church and you can either be a giver or a taker. And Paul's exhortation is that every Christian be a giver rather than a taker. Rather than someone who just comes and grasps and get all they need but is never willing to give. Now I do think you can be a giver and a receiver at the same time. Because many of us want to be, you know, I'm never going to ask for help. I'm never going to tell anybody when I need them to pray for me. I'm never going to tell anybody when I'm struggling. That's called pride. Okay, in humility, we can be a giver and still be people who receive when we need it in community. But Christian humility moves us not only to ask for help, but also not to take it when I don't need to. So givers can be receivers, but we should never be takers. And that's on all of us to figure out how we relate to our brothers and sisters. Am I a giver? Am I a taker? And can I be a humble receiver? Now, 
Paul addresses all of this, this idleness that may have happened, this kind of taking graspy um, uh, projection of people in 2 Thessalonians chapter three as well, more fully. So I'm gonna read this in full. If you wanna flip over about two pages to your right, 2 Thessalonians chapter three, he has to kind of bring this idea up again to make sure that these people understand clearly what he's talking about. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse six, here's what he writes. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. So he's saying, don't even have anything to do with them if they're not willing to work, if they're just being idle. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. And it was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. I love that word play there. You're not busy at work, but you're busy bodies. You're, you're around stirring up trouble. You're not living a quiet life. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Paul was not a stranger to hard work. He did not uh, he, lo- he loved to work hard. He, he didn't take from the churches, but he gave to them. He was a tent maker by trade. So when he wasn't out preaching the gospel and caring for these churches, he was making tents to provide for himself and his, the people traveling with him. So, so the gospel doesn't get rid of hard work. It doesn't negate hard work. It redeems hard work. The gospel and sweat should go hand in hand. Because God's grace doesn't produce laziness. It shouldn't ever produce entitlement. It should produce gratitude and it should produce productivity. Grateful productivity. Now, on the opposite side, so we have, we have here people who are lazy and people who are idle, people who aren't willing to work. But on the opposite side, we have, I think, kind of this American syndrome of self-sufficiency. Like, I'm gonna pull, up, pull myself up by my own bootstraps, like I just talked about a minute ago. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of go the self-sufficient lone ranger kind of way and always provide for myself, never take any help from anyone. I'm not gonna ask for help even when I need it. But being in the gospel and, and working hard doesn't mean that we won't ask for help when we need it. And it also means that we won't shut our hearts off to those who do need help, truly need help. Because we can go, well, you're just being lazy. Those people are just being lazy. We're not gonna help them, that we wouldn't shut our hearts off to them. So we each, each of us have to pay attention to ourselves and our own hearts in this area. Because as Americans, we tend to go one of these two ways. On the one hand, we're self-sufficient. We never depend on anyone else. And in this case, we don't need grace because we can make it on our own. When you're self-sufficient, you're telling God, I don't need your grace, I can do it. And on the other hand, we're tempted to live entitled lives. And in this case, we exploit grace. 
And we allow our laziness and entitlement to win the day. So we have to figure out where we stand. And the end result of this should be that we all come, that we live grace-filled, industrious, responsible lives reflecting Jesus. Or we can live entitled, lazy lives, or we can live self-sufficient lives. And those lives reflect poorly on a watching world, which brings us really into our next and final piece here that we should be living witnessing lives, witnessing lives, lives that are witness to the world that's watching about who Christ is. So to live quiet lives and industrious lives really have as their goal, we see this phrase here in verse 12 of chapter four, to walk properly before outsiders, to walk properly before outsiders. As I said earlier, the world's watching us If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you identify yourself as a Christian, the world is watching you. And the world is watching the church. And so my question is, are we telling an accurate story about Jesus or not? Are you telling an accurate story with your life? Is this church telling an accurate story of the life of Jesus with how we live? Now, I realize that on the one hand, we shouldn't care what the world thinks, right? Jesus made it clear that the world would hate us because the world hated him first. He promised us persecutions. He promised us oppositions. He promised us trials because we're connected to him. And if he was persecuted and even killed for his faith, why should we expect anything better So in this regard, we live in a world, in a culture that's quickly moving to secularity. They're they're quickly moving away from anything having to do with God, from a, a detachment just from a fundamental belief in the spiritual realm and of God in particular. But more than this, as our culture moves that way towards secularity, it's, it's not just a non-Christian culture, we're actually moving into an anti-Christian culture. That's where our culture is going. And friends, that's the same culture that these Thessalonians were living in. The same exact thing. So we're not very far from them, so these words should be poignant for us as the world is hostile to the gospels, is hostile to those who hold to it, persecution and opposition should not come as a surprise to us, as the apostle Peter said, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This isn't a surprise. It shouldn't be something that shocks us because the gospel is repugnant to an unbelieving world. And the church will receive bad press no matter what we do. The gospel itself will always be offensive to fallen human beings. It was offensive at one point to every single one of us until God broke through and gave us light and helped us to see and believe the beauty of Jesus. Now, some of you are even there where the gospel is offensive to you even now. Now, as believers, we're responsible to take care that it's the gospel that's offensive, not we who are offensive. 
The appeal in these verses is not towards necessarily right belief or right proclamation. It's towards right behavior. It's towards living lives that look like Jesus in the midst of a world that is hostile and watching. And this right living, this walking properly towards outsiders looks like quiet, industrious lives that overflow with the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So the, the gospel naturally offend. It doesn't need any help from you. It doesn't need any help from me to offend anybody. But the gospel will also naturally attract and the way that we live our lives will be one of its best advertisements at your workplace, at your school, wherever you happen to be, in your neighborhood, in your family. So we can never be disciples whose actions dishonor our king. We must, we must make sure that our friends and neighbors and coworkers and relatives and others who are watching cannot lay the reason for their unbelief at our feet based on the way that we live. Okay, but how do we do this? Let me just give you three quick things. First, we must proclaim the gospel. So these verses, because they, they implore us, they urge us to live quiet and industrious witnessing lives, they don't give us the option to not speak the gospel. They don't, they don't give us the option to not witness to Jesus' beautiful redemption love. They don't give us the option not to point to him. Because if we know him, if we love him, if he saved us, we should have nothing better to talk about than the love of our savior. We must speak, proclaim the gospel. And if you're afraid to do it, pray for courage. Ask God for opportunity, for open doors. Take somebody with you. Don't go alone. Take somebody with you, another brother or sister to proclaim with you to speak the gospel. But we also must embody the gospel, and that's really what these verses are about. And to embody the gospel, we have to live in community. Because when we live isolated lives, when we, when we cut ourselves off from other believers, we're more prone to the attacks of the devil. We're more prone to allowing sin to creep into our lives unchecked and cause our lives to be things that don't, to be lives that don't reflect who Jesus is. As believers, we have to live in community with other believers who know us, who will hold us accountable, and we must ask for help. And when I say ask for help, I mean ask for prayer. Ask for brothers and sisters to hold you accountable, to embody the gospel, to live lives of witness, and also we should be praying for each other. And then finally, the final thing is depend on grace. This is not something we can do on our own, only with the help of the spirit that Jesus has sent us, that he has given to us, who indwells us and empowers us and is changing us to be more like Jesus. It's only with the help of the Holy Spirit that we can begin to partner and work with God to become more like Jesus to become more sanctified, to, to embody and, and, to, and to live lives that look more and more like him. So we must depend on grace. This is not something we can do on our own. Will you pray with me?
Our Father, we do, we, we end with these words that we want to depend on grace. And God, we cry out to you today for help because anything I've talked today about is not something we can do on our own. And we fool ourselves to think that we can. So just as we needed your grace to save us, we continue to need your grace to make us holy. So Father, teach us to work, but not in our own power. Father, not with our own intelligence, not with our own wisdom. Teach us to work hard by the strength that the Holy Spirit gives us. And so Holy Spirit, we ask you for help. We ask you to come and fill us and renew us and change us. God, that we might live quiet and industrious lives, that you might bear and produce fruit in us, that when the world looks at us, God, when the world looks at us as individuals, when the world looks at this church, that they see a community of people who love you and love each other and will lay down our lives for this world. Father, teach us what it means to abide in Jesus, who is the vine and we are the branches and only through him might we bear fruit. So we, may we abide in him even more this week, Lord. We pray all these things in your name, amen.